it's difficult uh, to say that. Uh, the challenge that I think everyone faces now with things is to go to more complex problems. Welcome to a new episode of the Engineered Mind podcast. I'm your host, Yusef, and on this podcast, I'm talking to researchers, scientists, and engineers, and how their work is shaping the world around us. For this episode, I am very honored to welcome Ehsan Hagigad on my show. Ehsan is a postdoctoral fellow at UBC studying stochastic modeling and uncertainty quantification of engineering systems. Previously, he was a postdoctoral associate at MIT, where he studied the assessment of induced seismicity due to CO2 sequestration and oil and gas injection in production, stochastic modeling and machine learning. He received his PhD from MC Master University specializing in computational geomechanics. His research interests include computational methods for mechanics of solids and porous media, stochastic modeling and uncertainty quantification, and machine learning of engineering systems. In this podcast, Asan and I talked about scientific machine learning, how to combine the finite element method and machine learning, where and how to get started combining those fields. Asan gives us insights into resources to get started, and how to use physics-informed neural networks and what the advantage compared to classical methods are, and so much more. And now, ladies and gentlemen, enjoy my podcast with Ahsan Hagigat. Hey Ahsan, welcome to my show. Hi Yusuf, uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to meet you. Yeah, it's so exciting to have an expert on scientific machine learning and computational mechanics now on my show. Today we will talk about a lot of stuff, um, especially Cyan, um, something that you've built yourself and uh, with the help of a bunch of other people, uh, I would assume. So we'll talk about that for sure and also resources that you used and you kind of are an expert in different fields. So that's very, very exciting. Um, but before we kick things off, as usual, we have like a one or two minute bio. Can you explain us what are you actually doing and how did your path look like moving from the engineering background, more of an FEM background, more to scientific machine learning? Yeah, uh, thanks again for having me. It's really a pleasure. And uh, also, I wouldn't call myself an expert. I know a few things, but uh, yeah, far from being an expert. And also, before I start, uh, I would like to thank you for putting these podcasts together. Uh, really, it's a lot of work, I know. And maybe uh, you could have done with this time uh, many other things. So I really appreciate it. And I hope uh, people enjoy Maybe not this particular episode, but uh, many other episodes that you have on your podcast uh, forever, essentially. Uh, yeah, so my name is Esan Haire. Uh, my background is computational mechanics, and this past for uh, five years, I've been studying uh, machine learning methods, statistical learning methods, to see how I can apply it to engineering problems. Um, a little bit of background, I grew up in uh, southern Iran, very small town, and um, uh, I was always interested in math, but the first time in undergrad course, numerical methods, uh, that was really a course that uh, caught my attention, and I was very interested about it, and then I took introduction to finite element, and the course of a structural analysis that you see, your it is a small, simple, uh, kind of um, element formulations, you can analyze a large scale structure and come up with some predictions. So that was something very inspiring to do the graduate school on continue it on computational methods, uh, in particular finite element and extended finite element, and then with applications to solid mechanics and flowing forest media. Uh, so I did my PhD in Canada, and then I 
uh, worked in industry for two years and a half, a uh, company for technologies. Um, and uh, in, as I graduated in, I defended my thesis in 2014, graduated in 2015, but that time there was a lot of uh, news uh, coming out on machine learning and uh, TensorFlow, Google open source TensorFlow that time. And uh, on my side also, I was getting familiar with the structural health monitoring. So if we have a few sensors, how can we incorporate in our analysis and how can we uh, do uh, real-time predictions and so on? And uh, at FTI, the problem that we were looking at uh, uh, was die and form the forming process essentially so you have a die and punch moving forming a sheet metal and uh, immediately the question for me what, what is the friction because it's so dynamic right it's changes over time you have the metal dust accumulation and uh, later on uh, the, the, the kind of sensor company hexagon purchased fbi and uh, that, that was immediate uh, question that I had for them. Okay, if you are digitalizing all these sheet metals, uh, uh, can we have access to that data so that we can do more predictions? Then I came home and thought about it. I say we have data, but then I realized, oh, that's um, having data is one thing, but actually using it in a finite element solver is another thing. And that was the motivation to start reading about statistical methods, optimization, and machine learning, and going to MIT for a postdoc and continuing here as a postdoc at uh, UBC until now. So at the moment, I just finished the postdoc at UBC and also was doing a little bit of consulting for a company, Seismix, and uh, uh, now I'm in a career change. It's not finalized yet, but yeah, so will be, there will be updates maybe in the next few weeks. Hopefully it was brief enough, not long. Yeah, that was very exciting, uh, San. Thank you so much for sharing this story with us. Um, maybe we'll get back to it at a later point as well, like um, asking more specific questions. But I think a lot of people would be interested, especially in your story, how did you combine FEM and scientific machine learning, those fields together? Where did you even get started? Because I think a lot of people struggle. They want to do CFD, they want to do FEM, but then apply AI methods to their problem. Um, maybe you can get started, like, how did you start? combining those two fields? And does it even make sense in every case to apply AI or machine learning methods to um, FEM slash CFD? Yeah, that's a great question. And I had the same question in the beginning. Um, I started again with finite elements and uh, um, a lot of papers in 2016, 2017, uh, they were following this approach. Okay, we generate a lot of data from finite element solvers or CFD solvers. And then uh, we uh, kind of fit a neural network to them with the deep learning model. Uh, the question for me, uh, so not all the works, but there was a lot of uh, works in that regard. And also, like, if you have uh, some uh, complex microstructure and you want to um, approximate it with a constitutive model, but it's very difficult, so you can also generate uh, variate, uh, yeah, uh, varying the microstructure, apply different type of loadings, and then uh, fit a neural network on it. Uh, so that was the, a lot of research back then. And um, um, the question for me was, if we have finite elements, so we are generating this many simulations, then 
we have to spend another time to train it. What is the real advantage? And in particular, what I found challenging was that, especially for constitutive modeling, at the end of the story, we need these constitutive models to go, for example, to explicit finite element solver. And classical theory of plasticity uh, gives you very simple algebraic equations that are extremely predictive. So it's not a lot of calculations, but if I have a multi-layer neural network with uh, tens of thousands of parameters, that's a lot of calculation. And note that we have to do that at every single integration point. So it's a lot of calculations and it wasn't obvious. Uh, in one sense, we may need it because we may not have a material model for a particular material, but on the other uh, side, it cannot be applied to very complex uh, structures. Uh, we are just simply limited by the computational power. And uh, so two aspects caught my attention early on. One was the reduced order modeling and uh, super resolution methods. Uh, that was a very active area of research. Uh, maybe it is now <laughs> a little bit hidden in many other things, but uh, I think it's uh, still the, the groups that they were doing this type of research is still are active in that regard. And uh, it's very cool to, to be able to, for example, the part that I'm interested most is if you have a, uh, if you can solve a gene problem on a coarse mesh, and then uh, using a super resolution method uh, go to a very high fidelity simulation. So th I think that would be the ideal mixture of machine learning and numerical methods. If the a number of degrees of freedom are limited, numerical methods are excellent, they are predictive and so on. And then if there is such an AI tool that takes us from this uh, course resolution to a very high fidelity simulation, I think that would be, the, that's the part that I was looking at and I'm still, <laughs> I haven't done any research myself, like publishing or so on, but I've done some reading and I like it very much. And uh, the other part was this uh, physics-informed machine learning. And um, that came the same time that I was reading these topics and I was not sure what to pursue as a like research. Uh, at MIT, I had uh, one main project and this machine learning was my side project. and. Um, I was not sure which direction to go, and uh, I think I was maybe lucky <laughs> that uh, Professor Karnielakis had a presentation in the mechanical engineering department, and uh, when their paper was just archived, and I uh, really uh, connected with the approach because it's very similar to uh, classical numerical methods in many sense. So I, I started working on that, and uh, yeah, our recent focus has been on, on that topic. Uh, so a start point, uh, going back to your question, a start point um, uh, really uh, from a finite element background. Um, I, I spend a lot of time reading books and uh, different books on machine learning and, uh, for example, like the very first book that I started was the Pattern Recognition by Bishop and then later on Deep Learning by um, good fellow quarters and um, also statistical le learning by Hasty and Tirshivani from Stanford, another author. Um, but um, but I think at the moment, if someone has a finite element background, uh, maybe the paper of Hasty for Vicaris Karniadakis is a very good start point because. 
you immediately see the connection. Okay, instead of polynomials, we have neural network as approximation. And then um, instead of going through the big form and then uh, kind of uh, the linear system solve at the end, we have this loss function and optimization. Uh, so I think it's very easy to connect with this paper. I don't know if I'm biased because I'm doing it, but uh, I, I think if someone has a numerical background, this paper is a very good paper to start with. There, there are many other good papers. Deep Reads was another uh, paper that came almost the same time as uh, this work. Uh, yeah, and so many other works. But in terms of simplicity and connection to finite element and uh, CFD backgrounds, I think uh, this would be a good starting point just to get the idea of what is it. And then we can go deeper, different neural network architectures, optimization problems, and all the other stuff. That's beautiful, Asan. Thank you so much for the insights. It's very, very exciting that you share this with us. And I, I hope and I wish that a lot of people benefit from uh, what you just told us and hopefully get started like combining machine learning and FEM. Um, you also have a project called Cyan. And what's very beautiful is to make the connection or have the link between um, what you just told us and like projects where to get started. I think people can also get started using your GitHub repository with the Cyan Jupyter Notebooks, which I think are very, very beautiful, like um, well explained. Um, if you had to explain a step-by-step -step instruction or have to write a step-by-step -step instruction, how would you approach a problem? Let's say uh, you have one notebook about the Navier-Stokes equation. How would you get started? Like a data prep uh, and then processing, post-processing. How would you approach it personally? Yeah, so uh, thanks for the comments about the Cyan. Um, the project, uh, a little bit background on the project. Mm -hmm. um, so when I started uh, working in the physics inform, I think like many others, uh, the first uh, kind of uh, code that we checked was the TensorFlow code by uh, Ray C. Perdikavis and Karnianaki. So they have that shared in their GitHub repository. And uh, so I started experimenting with that. Uh, it's a great code, well written. And, uh, but a few things caught my attention. For example, um, there was no automation in terms of saving the weights of the neural network. So I had to either write my own or write it like a pickle binary file and then every time load everything to the environment and so on. So I wanted to see like if I want to start from a pre-trained stage and how to go further and so on. These were not uh, implemented. They are not significant, but um, there were like different neural network, especially in the beginning of uh, when someone learns something, you're excited about all this. What about recurrent? What about this type of architecture? What about that type of architecture? So uh, I searched around and Keras, uh, I found it uh, a very nice library, well documented, and um, on top of TensorFlow. And the workflow in Keras was very simple. And kind of the logic uh, that you follow is um, very like a, a software development uh, approach. So I liked it and I started experimenting with that. And uh, immediately I even further liked it because you could save the weights, for example, in uh, HDF5. Uh, and then we can open it in MATLAB or any other platform. You can plot the neural network graph with just one call, so everything is ready for you. You can uh, build many complex architectures with very few lines of code. 
And uh, uh, the part that was not implemented in KRS was this uh, concept of physics in neural networks, differentiation, these things, they were not uh, the purpose of KRS because usually in the computer science they have like uh, data-driven machine learning, uh, supervised machine learning most often. And uh, so that's the part that uh, motivated me to uh, eventually write Cyan in a way that I can share it with others. So uh, at the time that we open source it, it was like mid-2019, the start of uh, my, uh, I just had my first uh, paper thereafter internally, so we had not, we, we did not have it out uh, yet uh, on the solid mechanics, but we open sourced it and I think until uh, our Cyan paper was archived, there was not many users other than myself and a few of colleagues that I collaborate with. But then gradually, now there seems to be a lot of people and it seems to be uh, downloaded uh, quite many times. Um, so uh, let me just turn off this for a second, sorry. Okay. okay. Uh, yeah. So that was the story how Cyan started. But now I think there are multiple very good resources. DeepXDE from uh, uh, Lulu. I think he just became an assistant professor now. So congratulations. Uh, uh, the, another library, Neural PD for Julia. Yeah. Uh, and then seeing that from NVIDIA. So I think there are many resources now. Um, so that's the story of Cyan, how it started. And I, because I wrote it and there was a community, so I still work with Cyan. But uh, so that's that side. On, the, uh, on your question, uh, solving, for example, an Stokes problem. Uh, I have um, um, kind of formulated or designed uh, the architecture of Tayan in a way that I understand it best. And that's uh, very similar to finite element or numerical solvers. So on one side, for a numerical, uh, for a finite element, uh, we pick, uh, for example, the order of shape functions, uh, the discretization, and uh, um, so something related to um, the element formulation itself. So once we pick that, then uh, we have the discretization and the salt. So these, there are two steps. So the first step, you just, for example, pick a quadratic uh, polynomial for your elements, and then you write your code or whatever uh, based on that um, shape function. You can abstract it to be more automatic, but the point is that uh, for the first step, the degrees of freedom, they are not known. So you just build the finite element solver from an abstract point of view. The second step, now you impose the boundary conditions and so on, and you solve it. And it's the same in Cyan. So and there is the functional interface that you uh, just define the neural network. What would be the architecture? And this is like a, a hypothesis. For example, if you uh, don't put any hidden layers, it's just a linear model. It has infinite combinations, but it's infinite planes. It cannot be suddenly nonlinear. Mm -hmm. So that's the first assumption you make. Uh, so with the functional interface, you build this uh, neural network architecture based on the problem you have in hand. If it's very complex, probably you need many layers and so on. 
uh, if it's very simple, probably you start with something that can also linear. And uh, the second step is defining the loss functions and optimization. So uh, that's done with the SI model. So SI model, um, you have a, you define the inputs and then the um, uh, loss functions and then SI model that train. Uh, essentially, you perform the training or the solve. So the, these two steps are um, are the steps needs to be taken. So with physics informed, um, we if we can use it like as a pure forward solver. And so the data is really um, some random sampling points uh, that cover domain and boundary conditions. So really, it's not like a CFD data, but we can also use it for uh, identification for characterizing, for example, uh, what is the viscosity of flow. Uh, so in that sense, we assume that we have like a data set, uh, and then um, given that data set, we still impose the PDEs, but now this time we let the uh, parameters of the PDE be trainable. So the optimizer tries to fine-tune the parameters of the PDE to match the data. So that's the uh, use cases of this physics information learning and also cyan uh, at the moment. Mm -hmm. What would be the output? Maybe maybe that's a redundant question, but what would be the output of the network? What do you get out at the end? Yeah, so it is uh, with physics informed, it is very similar to finite elements. So uh, what are the shape functions? Um, um, so the output, for example, is displacement as a function of uh, space for time. Well, time, we usually discretize it with some Euler method, but uh, let's just uh, stick to uh, uh, steady state problems. So the shape functions are um, a function of, uh, so the output is displacement, for example, or fluid pressure, and the inputs are uh, space and uh, space variables, X and Y. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, for science in particular, for example, FEM problems, is there also a way to find or change the network in the sense of that you could have multiple output variables or is there like only a limited yes. amount of... No, you can have as many outputs you want, uh, but this concept of physics in four neural networks, uh, that's how uh, mm, it is uh, kind of uh, how it works. Uh, yeah. So essentially you approximate the uh, solution, which is, for example, displacement or pressure with the neural network as a function of X and Y. And if you do that, then you can use automatic differentiation, an algorithm that is readily available in all uh, machine learning packages to evaluate the PDE residual from the very beginning, from the random state of the neural network. So in the beginning, everything is random. But from the very beginning, you can evaluate this PDE residual, and that guides the optimizer uh, to go to a state that also satisfies the PDE that you care about. Yeah. What would be also very interesting for me, Hassan, thanks for explaining this in so, so much detail, is what's the time, like the computational time difference between using something like pins and then maybe the classical, let's say I pick a random solver, FEM solver that's on the market. Um, can we even compare those two, or is like the pin dependent on the data that I get from the classical methods? So, uh, as a pure forward solver, meaning that we don't, uh, if we don't feed any data from finite element, uh, 
so pins are the training pins at the moment are very slow. Uh, so if you have like a, a two-dimensional problem that would take fraction of second uh, using finite element uh, with pins, it may take I don't know a few minutes or half an hour of training. Mm -hmm. um, it is not very surprising though, uh, and I think the reason is related to optimizer. Imagine instead of like a MATLAB uh, backslash, which applies a direct solve, right? And it's very optimized now with the scores and the sparse solvers and so many other optimizations in place. Uh, we just wanted to do the uh, Jacobi iteration. So just multiply uh, K with a random vector and then try to just repeat these iterations to get to the uh, solution. So that would be a very a slow uh, process even for finite element. Uh, if, or for example, if you want to use iterative methods like uh, gradient descent, if you don't use um, a proper um, um, preconditioner, I forgot the word for a second, a proper preconditioner or uh, yeah, a proper um, a scaling, then number of iterations may take forever and it becomes much slower than, for example, a, just a forward solve using MATLAB or Paradiso solver or some other solver. So, um, so this is the bottleneck at the moment, uh, is this optimizer. Uh, and I think there are a lot of uh, groups are looking at it, and there is a still no solution, but there might be a solution sometime near future, uh, near future to address this. I don't think uh, uh, disk atom optimizer is the best choice for uh, physics and for machine learning when we don't have data. When we have data, it is perfect. It converges very fast, uh, and uh, yeah, and you can reach very uh, accurate solutions because if you have enough data, you can do those the stochastic optimization. It's uh, you can parallel it, and everything is now done automatically in TensorFlow. But uh, with the physics in form as a forward solver, it is relatively slow. Um, yeah, but I think we will see maybe some updates in the next year or two. But we need to not forget that it's very early stages of this uh, approach. So many changes may come, even like the architecture itself may change, uh, the solver may change. If you compare it to finite element, which has started like in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and even like iterative methods uh, in 90s, they were not still good. And then the concept of um, direct sparse solvers came in. So it's been a lot of work that we have such uh, optimized solvers now. But uh, with physics in four neural networks, it's, it's just the beginning, I think. So. I think now that the excitement is over, everyone is applying, has applied it to his own problems. Maybe we sit down more uh, kind of patiently and find better solutions. Yeah, that's so exciting. And I'm really looking forward to see what it, what comes in the in the future. And I think I love it that you said that we are at the beginning of like pins, because maybe you can compare it with the final element that like the early days where you had punch cards and solving system by hand and had like these huge machines which solved like the punch card system for you. So um, maybe that's the parallel there. But one person might ask, and that would be my next question, um, why even pins? 
why are we interested in pins? Why do we even make this effort and do a bunch of number crunching and all these papers for what? Why pins? So, yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, the main drawback of elastical solvers is uh, it's difficult to incorporate data. Uh, if you have uh, a structural dynamic problem, uh, usually you have like the finite element solver and there is like external optimization loop, uh, whether it's uh, standard optimization, it's Bayesian, so on, but that's external. And for optimization, we need to evaluate gradients. And uh, imagine finite element is like a implicit solver. So uh, given a set of parameters, then uh, you can solve it and get the displacements. But we cannot just perturb the parameters on the fly uh, and so on. So I think uh, in that sense, um, that's the drawback of classical solvers. Uh, but it can be also related to implementation. I saw a paper recently from Stanford uh, that they re-implemented finite element in these new uh, tools that offer uh, automatic differentiation. And uh, they were able to figure out an algorithm that allows you automatic differentiation for the finite element solved. And I found it very interesting because if you have those gradients, then uh, essentially that's the, um, the can, that can be helpful a lot in terms of optimization. Optimization, for example, if we use a gradient descent optimizer, we have a loss function, so we want to minimize the distance between the sensor observation and the finite element output. So uh, let's say uh, finite element output gives you a certain displacement and sensor gives you something else. So we want to minimize this uh, so that they match. And uh, um, with the gradient descent solver, you're, you need to move in the direction of uh, normal to the loss. So essentially we need derivative of loss with respect to, for example, elasticity modulus. And uh, in the classical methods, that is done with the perturbation. So you do like the finite difference. So for every evaluation of, for every parameter, you need two finite elements solved. You can optimize it and so on, but that's the general idea that you need two finite elements solved so that you can evaluate the gradient vector based on just one parameter. And imagine if you have tens of parameters. So that was the drawback for classical methods, but if they can be re-implemented or retaught in a modern framework that offers automatic differentiation and those abstractions maybe maybe uh, we go back again to finite elements uh, because at least in one side in terms of uh, approximating a partial differential equation it is extremely efficient so maybe we go back but uh, the main drawback and the main driving force was if you have some data and if you have some physics um, then finite element solvers they are not designed for doing intake data so physics or machine learning tools are very good with data. So a mixture of these would be pins, essentially. Mm -hmm. When we talk about cyan in particular, is it that would you define it as a more black box approach so that you can use all these functions implemented in cyan? Or is it still a white box to some extent? What would you personally say? Uh, I wouldn't call it black box because the neural network architecture um, there is, uh, it, it's uh, with the physics informed neural network, we usually use the fully connected 
neural network. So in terms of understanding that, there has been a lot of research. Uh, researches. Uh, so you know what you are approximating, and you can pick different approximations. Uh, for instance, if you have a problem that has uh, a simple, I don't know, linear or quadratic solution, so you can just form it that way. So it's not a black box, you have control. And then in terms of uh, uh, the solution, so I think uh, the loss functions are very clear, so it's PDs and boundary conditions and so on, or if you have data. Um, yeah, so I wouldn't, actually that, that is like a feature of things that is not black box, so it's understandable if you just uh, look at uh, what this machine is doing. Mm -hmm. Compared to, uh, I would call, for example, a pattern recognition or a classifier uh, that has just a new neural network or architecture, for example, a convolutional architecture or something. Uh, yeah, that would be more like a black box, uh, but in, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't, so I, I don't want to go that direction, but I don't call pins a black box in particular. Yeah, I think that's in, inherently like that they adopt like not being a black box. But the question why I asked this in particular is, um, is there kind of a movement or like a stream in the pin world where they go to more explainable AI in terms of pins? Is it something that you I think notice? Yes, I, I think uh, uh, pins is certainly uh, one of the uh, explainable AI tools, but I think in general, uh, there is a trend to go toward explainable AI. And uh, for two reasons, one is it's better interpretable and also uh, if you understand the system better, I think it's also easier to optimize it, maybe faster, more accurate and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, so in general, I think in all fields, I see that uh, there are more trends in terms of explainable AI, but certainly like I want to stick to uh, the area that I read a lot about, the things are uh, explainable. Um, there are also many other works, for example, um, um, the works on dynamical systems, on sparse learning, uh, if you have noticed those, so those are also very straightforward methods uh, we use these machine learning models uh, or algorithms, but uh, but the steps are very clear what we take at every step. Yeah, so um, I'm not talking about maybe the, the future of Cyan when it comes to more complex problems. Where do you see maybe Cyan going in three, five, maybe even 10 years? Maybe not even 10 years because there will probably be like exponential development and growth and like new methods come up, but maybe in three to five years, Cyan, where do you see Cyan going? Well, that's a very tough question because there are so many solvers coming out and so many groups that have a lot of funding and a lot of resources and students. So uh, it's difficult uh, to say that. Uh, the challenge that I think everyone faces now with things is to go to more complex problems. And I think it's particularly associated with the optimizer mm -hmm. and the way that we formulate the loss functions. Uh, so, if there is an improvement in this uh, era, and then um, I think there would be even much more interest immediately to all packages, not necessarily cyan, but to, to anything that is available. Uh, but until 
then um, yeah at the moment because we have like a, a website and the website is connected to google analytics and i i can see when it's going up and it's going down so i think it is uh at the beginning there was like no one other than myself uh, just checking the website then gradually my collaborators but then suddenly after we archived the paper so they went up to i don't know 400 uh, visits uh, per month uh, the downloads are a lot but downloads doesn't necessarily mean that a lot of users are using it so there are a lot of clusters around the world that automatically download and back up everything there are uh, if you open a google for example no, uh, collaboratory notebook uh, you have to do pip install so if you open it 10 times that's 10 times the 10 downloads so downloads doesn't mean anything but website visits show for example number of active users and also new users uh, so it's been now six months or seven months that it is around 400 uh, per month and it hasn't changed significantly so maybe i would call it a peak at the moment <laughs> and maybe after that it goes uh, down uh, unless we resolve the uh, optimization problem so there was a lot of work on the optimization and with cyan i um, so one challenge is okay you have multiple last terms and they are competing with, with each other should we just add them together? Should we do a weighted sum or what? So there was a lot of works on, um, uh, well, in the literature, they are called like a, a multi-objective optimization or multi-agent optimization. And uh, uh, so I implemented maybe four or five adaptive weight strategy. Uh, so they automatically Evaluate some weights based on gradient scaling, based on uh, neural tangent kernel, and some other works. Um, so that's been helpful in terms of uh, more people using the package because it may not, it was not working in the beginning for their problem. But then, as soon as you uh, activate this adaptive weight, because they don't have to fine tune it by hand, uh, you just put adaptive weights and it automatically does it for you. So that's uh, raised the interest. So I think it's still uh, on the solver, on the optimization side, if we find an algorithm that makes the training much faster, immediately we see a jump in number of users and number of researchers. Uh, and if we don't address that, that will go down. Yeah. So I hope personally that the science project doesn't have like an AI winter. Um, and hope that the community will grow. And also, I will put a link to your Slack channel in the description of this uh, podcast. So people who are interested in joining Ahsan and his uh, journey of developing, of course, the best uh, uh, machine learning uh, toolkit, let's put it that way, um, I'm happy to invite them and also um, take part in the journey. Um, yeah, yeah, thank you very much. That's that. Apart from, you have also other projects like SciML, FemLab, uh, VFemLab, and Next uh, Meal. Um, are you still working on those? Or are they like kind of declining in terms of? Yeah, so uh, uh, good questions. I thought they are private, but okay. I, I see them. I see them on the homepage, so that's why I'm asking. Oh, on the homepage, yes. So VFM Lab uh, was a project that I started uh, long ago. Uh, in uh, it is in Bathab. Um, um, the idea was that uh, so in finite element, what we do. 
we have this for loop over elements, right? And uh, for compiled code, that's not an issue. Uh, you can optimize it and so on. But if it's a MATLAB or a scripting language, it is a great issue because uh, they don't like these for loops. It slows down a lot because uh, the interpreter has to go to the slope and redo the calculations. So uh, there is this great um, open source package, MRST, uh, MATLAB Reservoir Simulator, or something like that. Uh, by Stintel, I think, in Norway. And uh, uh, so the, it, it is a um, CFD solver, but uh, so uh, with CFD, everything is vectorized because you don't have this element integration and a lot of things get simplified. But with finite element, with higher order or so on, we always need this close to adversary integration rules. So the motivation for VFM Lab was to uh, rethink the implementation of finite element so that instead of we loop over elements and then loop over those quadratures, uh, first loop, the first outside loop is over quadratures, then we can evaluate the residual, for example, at all elements at once. So we can vectorize that way everything. And so that was like the end the implementation. So it immediately made the implementation way faster in MATLAB. And then and the follow-up was to incorporate the uh, XFEM and be able to evaluate this. Um, um, for example, the problem that I worked a lot uh, at MIT was, and like uh, my, I didn't work a lot, but my advisor has been <laughs> working a lot on this topic for the past 10 years, is the induced seismicity and when where they incorporate like the faults into their model and then um, um, Faults and different geologic layers is really challenging in terms of mesh generation. I work on one of the projects myself, and the mesh generation takes a few months because you have uh, these cloud of points that are from uh, seismic inversion, and from there you have to build surfaces, and from those surfaces you have to cut them and so on and build the geologic model. It's a very, uh, yeah, very, it's not a nice for. <laughs> nice work to do. It's a lot of uh, just fine-tuning work, otherwise uh, they don't intersect nicely these surfaces and then the meshing has problems. So the second motivation of this VFM lab was to uh, use extended FEM and implicit interfaces to represent these surfaces so that we just work with a uniform mesh but then these interfaces they come um, uh, using an implicit representation. Um, but I haven't worked for it, on it for ever since I started with things. So, mm. so that's been actually I implemented the XFEM and uh, did we did some tests. We presented it at the AGU conference, but there was a lot of other steps. Uh, so we uh, didn't continue. I didn't continue on that part. Uh, maybe sometime in future. But um, but now there is a lot of active research. So uh, there is this open source new um, code JAX from Google, which with just one call, you can uh, vectorize, for example, for loops, mm -hmm. right? So it does it automatically for you and it's distributed over CPUs and GPUs. So 
I don't see like uh, as intense need as uh, in the past um, with this uh, vectorization, for example. Um, yeah, and then also with Julia. So Julia, I think it's extremely optimized uh, because it uses just-in-time compilation. So you really don't need to do much with for loops. And if you keep the for loop outside, everything is much simpler, but it's just not very efficient for a scripting language. So yeah, I don't have enough motivation to start working on that at the moment. Mm -hmm. I see, yeah. Still interesting. What's another thing you mentioned? But yes, SIML and next meal. Oh, and ah, next meal. Yeah, next meal was a fun project we did for the course uh, introduction to deep learning at MIT. So that's like a, a short course offered every January. That's a great course. They share uh, their videos online. Mm -hmm. And um, so I attended that in 2018, uh, January 2018. And the project we had in mind, uh, I still think it, it is fun. Uh, and we won like the NVIDIA Jetson Prize. Cool. I think we were uh, second or third. Uh, the idea was that with Netflix, uh, uh, so to answer your question quickly, we are not working on that uh, either. So that's also backlog. But the idea was that, so you have Netflix for uh, movie recommendation. Mm -hmm. So it's initially, it's initialized based on your region and so on. But as soon as you start watching a movie, for example, if you watch a comedy, then it starts suggesting you comedies from maybe other directors from other countries and so on. Uh, but, but let's say I have a stake, I, I search for a stake today in uh, Yelp. It doesn't offer me other meals that are similar to a steak, for example, I don't know, kebab or some mm. Greek food or something like that. So the idea was that to build a taste profile uh, for everyone based on their selection, very similar to Netflix, but for food. Uh, so that when they try it once or twice, uh, when they start purchasing or ordering, then it creates that profile, whether they like sour, salty, they like sweet, and so on. And based on that taste profile, it all, uh, offers you from other nations. I'm very picky, for example, uh, but I, if I know that I'm gonna like something and it's within the taste profile that I like, uh, then I may try it. But uh, by naturally, I don't try something that, <laughs> that I don't know. So th that was the idea. And, uh, well, yeah, that's, that's so cool. I see that it's not open source. Like, uh, is there any incentive to put it uh, back online on your GitHub repo? Or I'm not sure if it's online. Um, yeah, the, these two are not online, and um, uh, the reason is uh, like we did some work. If you want to put something online, I think it requires some documentation, some uh, nice organization, and so on. Uh, but if it's just uh, an internal project and it's not nice, so I don't want to put it online, then get a lot of emails, okay, what is this to or what to do with it and so on. So that's the part that I haven't opened it. Uh, not that I wanted to, for example, keep it private for mm -hmm. profit or something, but um, it wasn't ready to be like an open source project. Mm -hmm. On the deep learning course that's taking place every January that we mentioned, is it also publicly available? 
Yes, yes. Introduction to Deep Learning, and uh, that's a course by MIT CSAIL. It's by the Electrical Engineering Department. Uh, they invite many good researchers. I think the year that I attended, um, Eric Schmidt from Google had a talk, NVIDIA, a few people from NVIDIA and IBM, they had presentations. Um, yeah, there are many good researchers and like they present latest topics in a simple way and some uh, uh, Google Collab or Jupyter Notebooks are available to start experimenting right from the beginning. And they had been offering it for yeah, every uh, January, so I think it will go. Okay. Yeah. Uh, for some time. Excellent. Yeah. If I find it, then I'll put it also in the description along with all the other links. I think the website is Intro to Deep Learning. That's it. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's easy. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Cool. Uh, two uh, uh, questions left, uh, Asan, before we wrap things up. One would be because you talked about loops. Now we can loop back to the beginning of the podcast. We had talked about saving weights and HDF5 format and so on. Um, is it possible to, let's say, you solve an um, elastic pro elasticity problem, maybe also plasticity problem in FEM? take those weights and apply it for maybe a CFD problem, like using kind of transfer learning methods. Is this something that's possible mm -hmm. already or not? Uh, yes. So um, with Cyan, uh, you can save weights at two levels. Uh, at the functional level, so let's say you have a complex problem, you have many functionals, and each functional representing one field variable. Uh, for example, one is displacement, one is a stress, and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, you can save the weights individually and uh, load the one that you need, or you can save the whole weights in HDF5 and then load it uh, whenever you need it. So that's implemented. That was a nice feature of Keras, and it's uh, I adapted it so that it's, it has the same interface as other functions in Cyan, but uh, yeah, it is implemented, and you can try using it. Whether it's going to be helpful or not, uh, what I have um, based on experience, if the problem remains very similar in terms of the expected outputs. Um, for example, if the displacement field uh, changes slightly, but overall the shape and the variations and the scale is the same, it is extremely helpful. It immediately gives you magnitudes of order of uh, improvement in terms of training time. So mm -hmm. um, a good practice would be to first uh, do a finite element solve on a reference problem, maybe simple, if you don't uh, want to do optimization with finite elements, so just pick a finite element that roughly represents your system, uh, do a data-driven training uh, with Cyan on that field variable, and then use the physics in form to, to tackle that exact problem you have in mind. And it immediately uh, improves the performance by magnitudes of order, so if you do this step. Uh, so transfer learning is extremely helpful. Uh, one area of transfer learning that I have not implemented yet uh, is when you scale up and down the uh, neural network. Um, so um, let's say you start with a very small neural network. You can train it immediately. Mm. That gives you some idea of uh, what the average weights should be. So there are some algorithms that then you can use this initial weights on this small network to increase the width or depth of the network. So there are some very well-established algorithms in the deep learning literature 
I haven't implemented that. So at the moment, uh, the transfer learning works if the network sizes are the same, but that's in my bucket list to be implemented so that we can start with networks that are very small, quickly training, and then uh, based on those weights, gradually increase the network size, uh, something like a mesh refinement in finite element or so on. Mm -hmm. yeah. Beautiful. And also, uh, last question about Cyan. Uh, it's also accessible when it comes to accessibility. You can use like a standard laptop. It doesn't have to be like a big workstation to use Cyan, right? Like to make a training. No, you even can use, uh, if, if you use Google Collab, then you can uh, use it on your cell phone or even like a, a tablet. So mm -hmm. no, it is accessible um, in your laptop. Of course, you have to install the dependencies. When you do pip install, it automatically uh, notifies you which are installed and tries to install it. But uh, you can use it in Google Collab, for example, without even a laptop. And uh, I really like what Google has done, I think. It is extremely helpful for people all around the world to have access to, especially people who don't have access to computational power, so they can immediately start using Google Collab and learn advanced numerical methods, machine learning methods, with something that is hosted on some remote server. So that, that's very cool. And uh, yeah, it's really, so yeah, yeah, really beautiful. You can install it on any computer, yes. Yeah, cool. Last question for me would be because I think a lot of people are also interested in that is how does Ahsan keep himself up to date with the latest pin, um, maybe publications? What do you use personally? Maybe things like Twitter, LinkedIn to keep up to date? Yeah, uh, LinkedIn are, yeah, LinkedIn is a good source. Um, I have found less uh, information on Twitter, mm -hmm. uh, like in terms of uh, good papers. Uh, but uh, Google Scholar and ResearchGate, uh, they are even, I think, better because they automatically scan papers and give you recommendation. When you go to your profile on Google Scholar daily, it gives you some recommendations. Uh, that's been the most useful one. And also, like, uh, uh, I have signed up for the journals that I like mm -hmm. and the topics that I like on archive, so I get, like, daily emails. I try to, yeah, read at least uh, one or two papers per day just to, uh, to be uh, maybe not in deep in a way that I can re-implement it the next day, mm -hmm. unless if it's something, like, very relevant. But uh, like a skim through a paper on a daily basis and I stay uh, active in that topic so that when we say something, it's not <laughs> obsolete. Yeah, I see. Yeah, Twitter sometimes helps because there's a lot of discussion between physicists and mathematicians and engineers. And sometimes you find That's very right. good, very good resources on Twitter as well. But I like the resources that you mentioned, and I'll put also. Uh, so at the end, we'll have like a big link list which people can check out with that cyan.com and the Slack channel from Hassan to participate in discussions and also other links that you mentioned. So uh, maybe any last motivating words from you, Hassan, to the community, and maybe people who want to get started using cyan. Uh, yeah, no, not uh, quite. So I first thank you again for creating this uh, nice podcast series. Uh, I hope it pays off your time at some time in future. But also, it, it, I'm sure that it's a motivating uh, platform for people all around the world. 
so I hope everyone enjoys this. Uh, one thing that I struggled a lot in the beginning, I spent a lot of time reading and reading and reading without not knowing what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think the most efficient way is to learn by doing something. Uh, of course, you need some basics, but if you know linear algebra of finite element, and just uh, start with one or two papers and uh, get the code online with Cyan. I have shared a lot of codes with DeepXD. You find a lot of codes, doesn't matter which tool you use. Start running it, see some results, try to experiment. And I think that would be like a more um, uh, motivating way to move forward. And uh, yeah, and don't be scared of machine learning. uh, similar to uh, what you are doing in finite element and CFD, and uh, some of the foundations for those methods maybe are more even established than, than machine learning. So, yeah, and uh, I hope everyone is safe in this time uh, with COVID, uh, and hopefully we don't have another lockdown with these new waves. So. That's my last word. Beautiful ending, Thank you very much. Thank you for participating in this podcast and sharing your knowledge with the world. And I hope there will be other second part in the future. Let's see how fast uh, the field changes. Then we can have like new updates on Cyan. And I'm quite sure that maybe I, or maybe if we do a deep AI dive, um, maybe you can even present like a Jupyter Notebook in particular, explaining what you did there, maybe on my channel, so people can share the love for scientific machine learning in the future. So with that being said, thank you so much, Asan, and I wish you all the best for the future and your science project, and hopefully see you soon. Thank you very much, Yusuf, and uh, yeah, bye now. Bye-bye. Take care. Take care.